my children. You can go get your binders if you haven't already for Children's Church. You go for it, Jesse. Go get your binder. He's been waiting patiently. All of you guys, if you need them, go get them. Well, ladies and gentlemen, as we settle in this morning into our preaching time, you can open up your Bibles to Colossians. We're still going through chapter 1. This is our third Sunday. Going through this letter written by Paul in his jail cell along with Timothy to the Colossian church. As you open it up, we're going to go through a little bit of the scripture leading up to our passage and then going through our passage this morning. But as the worship team was singing about, do you want to take a guess at the theme of today's passage that we'll be reading? If you had to sum it up in one word, building off the last song, what would you guess that one word is? Let's take a look. Throw the slide up for us. It is hope. But my question for you is the question that I was struck with as I was reading about this passage this week. The one commentator said, as we read through biblical hope, we need to pay attention that we don't read through it with the lens of what we see as hope. Because we can treat hope without even meaning to like a flimsy wish. But biblical hope isn't a flimsy wish at all, is it? It's a sure promise. Let me give you a couple examples of that. If you are a fan of a sports team, you know what it's like to have hope. This hope that when they play the game, they just might win. Is that a sure promise? No. Fans of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders can tell us that that is not a sure promise. Fans of the Toronto Maple Leafs can tell us it is never a sure promise. But we are ready to get our hearts broken again, aren't we? Yes, we are. Hope. Hope for that student in high school who comes to youth group and tells me they didn't study at all for that test on Monday. Not even a little bit. But they hope that they pass. Yeah, they're not going to pass. No. <laughs> that is a flimsy wish, my friends. A flimsy wish. That's not a sure promise. But the greatest, Adrian will understand, the greatest hope that ends up being a flimsy wish is the long-range forecast. There is no flimsier wish for those of us who grew up farming than the long-range forecast. Why? Because always, how many days into the future is the rain? How many days? What, seven days into the future? Maybe 10 days? Oh, there's half an inch coming. Look at it, 40%, 60% chance. Half an inch is coming. Seven days from now, though. Look at it. It's coming. And then you check the weather again four days later. Oh, seven days from now, that half inch is coming. It's right there. Look at it. It's coming. Yeah. I'm going to spoil the surprise. It's not coming. It's not coming. <laughs> A week later, no chance of rain. Weird. But the long-range forecast says it's coming. Do you know why? We have no idea. I think it's just hope. Just hoping. Hoping it's coming. Biblical hope is the opposite of that. It's the opposite of that. When they hope in something, it's something that God has promised. If you look at Hebrews, for example, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. The scripture is going to go up on the screen. This is that famous passage where the pastor is writing about what faith is. Right before that chapter full of people from the Bible listed 
who were all famous for their faith. And this scripture says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. These people in the Bible, famous for their faith, were assured of the things they hoped for. They hoped that God would provide. They hoped that God would rescue. They hoped that God would save. They hoped that God would remain true to his word. They had faith in that hope. And that hope isn't based on something flimsy that might topple over. That's based on a sure promise. So when Paul writes to this church, and he tells them about the hope of the gospel... Friends, the question for you and me this morning as we read these verses, are we building our faith on the foundation of Jesus and what he's done for us, or are we building our faith on a combination of what Jesus has done and what we can do, what we can achieve on a foundation that we ourselves are constructing? Where is our hope? What are we building our lives on? If you're in Colossians 1, and if you were here for the first sermon, then you would have seen what we read through in verses 9, 10, 11, and 12, and through there. Take a look at these verses again. I have a couple of them up on the screen. This is Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 9. Paul says this, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Paul, when he finds out that this church has faith in God and love for one another, what does he say? My prayer for you is that you will have spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So that as you go off into your life, as you live your life in this manner worthy of God, as you construct your faith for the rest of your days. It's being built on spiritual wisdom and understanding. And here's why that is so vital. Because if you build it on earthly wisdom and understanding, do you know where it's going to lead you? It's going to lead you to a faith that is dependent upon your works. It will. Because human wisdom is going to tell us this, that what God has done for us is great, but that we ourselves need to work out our salvation and earn our way in. That the bad and the sin inside of us needs to be removed and somehow we need to participate in the earning of that salvation. Look at every other belief system. Look at all the other religions that do not completely trust the foundation of Jesus. Do you know what they pull in each time? They pull in an element of you working your way into heaven because that's just the logic. You have done bad you must do good. Or the logic of, there's no such thing as a free meal. If you're going to get in, there must be something you must do. If you've read ahead in Colossians and spoiled the story already, you've gotten to chapter 2, and there's all these influences from the outside world being pressured on this church. There's Jewish influence to live a more Jewish life according to their laws, and there's Greek and pagan influence to bring in spiritual worship and philosophy on top of their belief in Jesus. Earthly wisdom will lead you down this path. Spiritual wisdom and understanding is a whole 
It's a whole different way of seeing the world. That this gift from Jesus is the complete foundation our lives are built on top of. That is not dependent on us. It's completely a gift from him. And it defies what we understand and know. That's why it's, it's nonsense to those who do not have the spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's foolishness to the world. So as Paul explains this to this church, that we need to have this spiritual wisdom and understanding, we come to the second sermon, verses 15 and on to 20. I threw up some of the phrases up on the screen, some of them that you are going to see in this passage from 15 to 20. So what is this spiritual wisdom and understanding we need to understand? Well, it's this. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Paul writes this beautiful poem, and he says what? He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. By Jesus, all things were created. And all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is above all things. And in Jesus, all things hold together. Jesus is the head of the body. Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. So that in all things, he might be first, preeminent. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Think about how distinct that is from the temple and the tabernacle of the Old Testament that a portion of God would come to live in their place of worship, but now the fullness of the deity has chosen to dwell in the body of Jesus. In verse 20, through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, earthly things, heavenly things, by making peace by the blood of his cross. Not a combination of how hard you can work and the sacrifice of Jesus. The peace was made through the blood of his cross. That is the foundation that this church, this young church, needs to understand and build the rest of their faith on top of. That's the foundation they need to cling to when the rest of the world is pushing them and pressuring them to accept a gospel that isn't true. Jesus is all of these things. So, my question is this. We know that we need to build this Christian life on spiritual wisdom. Paul has revealed that spiritual wisdom is all based around Jesus. So now, where do we go from here? This morning, we are going to read verses 21, 22, and 23. We're going to read through all three of them together. And then we're going to read through them one at a time and look at the specific lessons we can learn from each one. The problem, the solution, and the condition. This morning's passage about the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel. So if you have your Bibles open, we're going to start at verse 21. I'm reading from my ESV. If you have a different translation, that's completely fine. But if you're wondering, this is the one that I'm using. Let's read all three verses together, and then we'll go back to 21 and talk about the problem that we find. The letter says this. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy 
and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's take a look at verse 1, or 21. I keep calling them 1, 2, and 3. Verse 21, the problem, the solution, and the condition. Pay attention to that as you read through this. And I think very quickly, you're going to see what I mean. The problem, the solution, the condition. This is the problem. You were once alienated. That word means estranged. There's a separation in that word. Right? This should draw you back to the beginning of the Bible. This should draw you back to Adam and Eve. Anytime you see that there's a distancing in between God and his people because of sin, it should bring to mind that first story that we meditate on in the Bible where God had to create the distance between us and him. Why? Because he is holy and we are broken. And for brokenness and sinfulness to be in the presence of holiness would mean our destruction and death. So it's God's great love that has to separate Adam and Eve from him. The estrangement is necessary for our survival. But now there's brokenness in the relationship that needs to be restored. So Paul is using that language to remind them that they are now aliens of God before knowing Jesus. There's this internal sin that he calls hostility in mind, and there's this external sin, their evil deeds. Or if you have a different translation, it might say your behavior. Now, I would say be careful if you're reading different translations um, that talk about the behavior being the cause of the mind like the hostility in mind, the sin internally is because of the external. Like you might see in the NIV, it talks about we're hostile in mind because of our behavior. And I don't think that's originally the thought behind this. Sin originates from inside and then reveals itself outside. So I prefer the reading that you'll see here that there's hostility in mind and there's hostility in behavior, not because of your behavior. Either way, there's an estrangement and an alienation. This one gets me, though, and here's why it gets me. Because the world is going to tell you something very different than this. What is the world going to tell you? That you need to spend time building yourself up. Right? The idea that self-esteem is this it's almost an idol that people bow down to at this point. But I understand why. You see, if your whole existence is built on the foundation that you are good enough, that you are strong enough, then you have to continue to reinforce that. You have to. Because if your whole life is just built on you, and you aren't good enough, and you're not strong enough, and you're not worthy enough, then it will come crumbling down. But the truth of the gospel is the opposite of what the kids come home from school often learning. But I understand why we don't teach this to the grade one kids. You are not good enough. You are evil. Dad, my teacher said, I am good. Well, kind of. But no, like when, once you get older, I'll explain it to you. You're not. You're hostile in mind. I'm picking fun at that, but it's the idea that I want all of you, including myself, to wrap our minds around this. And if this is the first time you've heard this, 
this might be shattering to you, there is no goodness in you apart from God. Our hearts, our hearts mislead us because our hearts are full of brokenness and sin. We are the enemy of God. What does it say in Romans? While we are still sinners, he died for us. While we were enemies of God, he died for us. Not while you and I were trying our absolute best. And we were actually making some headway finally. No, enemies of him. That's the problem. So many people in our world are missing the gospel. And I think one of the main reasons why, why aren't people being saved? I think they don't understand they need rescuing. Like, I think they're drowning in the pool and they don't even realize they need to yell for the lifeguard. They think they're fine. They think they are fine. They don't know they're lost. But as soon as you understand the brokenness that exists between you, God, then you start to cry out for someone outside of you to bring the healing for this brokenness. You need a rescuer when you recognize that you can't rescue yourself. In verse 22, from the problem to the solution. So read 22 with me. He, so this is Jesus, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is jumping back to verse 20. He has provided the reuniting for the hostile, alienated, estranged people. Jesus has provided the way home. He has ushered us in. And in this process, he is the one making us holy and blameless and above accusation. Right? It's a courtroom scene, the idea of being justified. That we stand before God and as he's getting ready to condemn us, Jesus says, set this man free. He's not guilty. He's completely innocent. And we're released. Justified. Above accusation. An idea of holiness. Not just blamelessness, but holiness. So now through Jesus, we are set apart back into a state that God always exists in. Holiness is the reason why Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. Why there's fire and flaming sword trying to keep Adam and Eve from getting back in, which would just lead to their death. But now we've entered into God's state of being set apart through Jesus. And now the reconciliation between the estranged parties can take place and we can come home. The problem, the solution, and then the condition. Verse 23. If, if, you catch that? If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This is the good news that's being preached under all of creation. Paul is a servant of it. He says, I'm a minister of it. That's this word for servant. This is the good news that I'm preaching everywhere I go. And I'm sitting in a jail cell because of it. This is the good news. If we continue in the faith. See, this church is at a crossroads. Again, you're going to see it in chapter 2. This pressure being pushed on them 
by the Jewish Christians and the Jewish community to start observing Torah law again, to go back to the days of Leviticus, where our goodness and right standing with God, so when he looks at us, he sees what is right, is based on our actions. And this is how they lived for thousands of years. Sacrifices, feasts and festivals, the practice of the Sabbath, all of these things. Galatians, you're going to see circumcision. All of these things. You need those as well. Otherwise, how could God accept you as holy if you won't even set yourself apart? That's what they would claim. And then there's the paganism. Then you have your Greek and Roman society, which is so used to their styles of worship, their sacrifices to their gods, and their great love for philosophy and wisdom. That's where Gnosticism is coming in. If you're a church history person, this idea of secret knowledge and wisdom that will lead us back to the divine. For in the flesh, we are broken and the flesh needs to be destroyed and we need to find salvation outside of the flesh. But then this leads them to this heresy that Jesus could have never really have been God if he was truly flesh. And if he was truly God, he could have never been flesh. Makes you wonder if that's why they use this language in verse 22 and verse 20. Peace is made through the blood of Jesus. God fills his flesh and his flesh dies on the cross. God has become man. The divine has met the physical. So this church, like our church, is under all these pressures to trust in more than just Jesus. And Paul can't even be there. He's sitting in this jail cell I imagine him in chains. That's why I keep making that motion. I just imagine him unable to move. He's speaking to Timothy. Timothy is writing this down as fast as he can physically write all of this down. And he can't be there. Timothy, you've got to tell them the foundation has to be Jesus. Timothy, you have to go tell them. Don't trust in those other things. Timothy, you've got to go tell them. Jesus came before creation. They can trust him. Jesus entered the resurrection before the rest of us. You can trust him. Timothy, you've got to go tell them that this faith means taking our eyes off the worldly and pointing it up towards heaven. Timothy, you've got to go tell them. It's going to change everything. It's going to change the way you live your life. It's going to change the way that you love your spouse. It's going to change the way that you love your kids. It's going to change the way that you're a slave master to your slave. This Christianity is going to it's going to change everything. Timothy, you have to go tell them. But if they build all of this on the wrong foundation, on this lie that you have to produce this righteousness and earn your way in, that Jesus' sacrifice isn't enough. If they build their house on this rock, they'll find out one day that it's sand. And it's all going to come tumbling down. Timothy, you've got to go tell them. That's what I'm imagining as I read this story. As we've talked about houses being built, as we've talked about foundations, this might remind you of the story from the Sermon on the Mountain from Matthew. For those of you who might not know that story, Jesus is preaching this incredible sermon. It's the largest, 
longest sermon that we have recorded in the scripture. Jesus is preaching it to thousands of people. It's called the Sermon on the Mountain. And he talks about the Old Testament Torah law and how it's being made new and fulfilled through him. And there's going to be a new promise Instead of our righteousness completely depending on our obedience to the law, now there's going to be this internal change that's going to lead to our righteousness instead of this external action. It's new. And as Jesus unveils how salvation is going to work and how this new Christian life is going to look, Jesus gets to the end of his sermon and he has the audacity to say something that most pastors never will. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the, what's the word? Rock. The rain fell. The floods came. The winds blew. And they beat on the house. And it didn't fall, did it? It didn't fall. Because it was built on the rock. But the story goes on to say there was another house. What was that house built on? It was built on the? It's built on the sand. Is he wrong or is he right? That house fell down. Jesus says, people that go home and listen to my sermon and do what I say, they are people building on the proper foundation. And people who go home and they don't take this to heart, the house is just going to collapse. What's the point? Beneath your feet right now, I bet, I'm not a betting man, I'm a pastor, you can't bet, can you? I bet though, you've never considered what's under your feet. What's under this carpet? You better believe it's concrete, it hurts. If you ever fall in here, that's not a soft wood floor. Do you know you don't come into this building thinking about the concrete floor? You know, you don't come in here to sit down and worship and think, thank goodness for concrete. I love it. Without it, the walls would come tumbling down. It's so important that if they did the concrete wrong underneath the building, there wouldn't be much point in trying to build all the rest of it. It's that vital, and yet you don't think about it. The foundation that we lay for our lives. I can't stress this enough. Paul can't stress this enough. If we build our lives and our faith and construct it on Jesus' sacrifice, then when death passes over, right, this language of Exodus, going back to being slaves in Egypt, the Passover, the tenth plague, As death passes over, what does it see? The sacrificed blood of the lamb over the doorposts of each house. Right? God is revealing his great power to Egypt and to his whole nation. And he said that he has control over life and death, not Pharaoh. And he's going to prove it. And he's going to send death over the whole nation. But he provides a way of escape for his people. If they would trust in the sacrifice of something pure. I told you this story. And this sacrifice is marked over their homes. And as death passes over, guess what it sees? Not how hard the mom and dad worked. Not how good the mom and dad were. 
What does death see as it passes over? The sacrifice, the sacrifice, the sacrifice, the sacrifice on all these different homes. I can't stress this enough. If our faith is built on top of a combination of the sacrifice of Jesus and how hard that we can work for him to earn our salvation, that foundation will crumble when you trust on it the most because you will always let yourself down because you are broken right to the core just like I am. But one day when you and I stand before the Father, he's not going to look at us and he's going to see a combination of Jesus and all of our lives. He's going to see Jesus. This idea again of the courtroom scene of Jesus being with us and saying, Father, he's innocent. I'm with him. I I testify on his behalf. He's innocent. He's with me. Right? And the Father says, well, was he a good enough person? Jesus goes, huh, he's with me. He's with me. Doesn't matter. He's with me. He gets in. Is there accountability for the way we live our lives? There is. We can talk about that in another sermon, but I want you to understand that is not dependent on us. As we celebrate communion this morning, as you come forward, two things are hopefully going to happen. Number one and then number two. Number one always comes first, right? Number one is this. I want you to take a few minutes and reflect. We have lots of time. Before you come and celebrate, I want you to ask yourself this question. What foundation are you building your life and your faith on? Serious. What foundation? And if this morning you begin to realize that you've been building it on a combination of what Jesus has done and what you can do, confess that this morning. Come before God in prayer and confess that you've strayed away from building your, your house and your faith completely and solely on him and confess that to him. Paul also told us in the Bible that if there's brokenness in our lives, if we know of someone who's been hurt by us that has something against us, if we need to make peace, if we need to confess unconfessed sin, then to do that first and then come to the table to celebrate. So reflect this morning And if there's unconfessed and repented sin in your life that you need to bring to the Father. Or if there's brokenness in the relationship between you and someone in the family that needs to be made right. And wait. It's okay. It's okay. There's no judgment. Wait. But if after reflecting and praying about this, if you're ready to come forward, then step two. Celebrate. Celebrate because this is a symbol of that foundation This is a symbol when you come forward and you hold the bread in one hand and the cup in the other that my life is completely built on this sacrifice, not on Darren being good enough, completely on this sacrifice. And that, my friends, is living hope. That, my friends, means that one day when I stand before my Father in heaven, instead of saying, who is this? He's going to say, welcome home, because he's going to see Jesus all over me, completely covered by Jesus. Welcome home. Come forward and celebrate. Reflect and celebrate. Worship team's going to come on up, and I'm going to pray for the elements of communion. There's a gluten-free option here if you have a gluten allergy. I'm just so glad that we get to celebrate this together. So bow with me in prayer, and then begin reflecting 
and then come forward when you're ready. Father in heaven, Lord Jesus, I confess that I'm a broken and sinful person. And Lord Jesus, as a family, corporately, we come before you and we confess that our hearts are broken and evil and they pursue themselves first. We always drift back into worshiping ourselves first. And we're sorry. As a family, Lord Jesus, we ask that you continue to forgive the sin that creeps into our lives day by day by day. We confess that we need you. We can't go a single day without you. Even if we've taken communion a hundred times, we come before you this time and say we still, we rely on your sacrifice for our sin. Father, reveal to us, each one of us, if there's unconfessed sin, if there's broken relationship, Lord Jesus, and hostility in the family, whatever it is that we need to make right, whoever we need to pursue, so there can be peace. And then if there is, Lord Jesus, thank you that we can come forward and we can celebrate this morning. That we don't have to be good enough. You already were. Lord Jesus, would we experience that freedom and that joy as we come forward to receive the elements of communion this morning. And Jesus, thank you for your death on the cross. Thank you that your body was broken for us. Thank you that you lost your life and your blood was shed for us so that our sin would be covered and that we would receive brand new life. So thank you as we receive this symbol that it takes our minds and our thoughts and our hearts back to what you did for us. Your body and blood the sacrifice and the covenant. Lord, this is an act of worship to you, to glorify you because you are worthy. You are holy, 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 completely set apart from us. And it's a privilege to be welcomed back into your presence. So we celebrate communion, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.
This word is a benediction before we go. From the Revelation, chapter 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, and this is what it was saying. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. I thank you that one day all things will be made new. You will dwell with us and us with you, and the separation will be gone forever. Thank you for that hope and the hope that Jesus created the way for us to get there. He is the one that we build our lives on top of. Lord Jesus, as the church dismisses from this place, would you bless them? Would you watch over them? And would you make their light shine brightly in this city that needs to see hope? Would hope be revealed through your church? I pray this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.